Uh, it's extraordinary because uh, this miracle reveals God's glory. And uh, it reveals God's glory because in it, Jesus Christ is going to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with death, right? And try as we might, and as much progress as we have made as mankind, we have not been able to defeat death, right? The journey of life has certainly been lengthened, but the destination for all of mankind remains unchanged. We all die. Yep, right? None of us really have gotten used to that idea. None of us likes that idea that we all die. I mean, humans have been around for a long time, and death has had a stranglehold on humanity from the beginning. We have searched every pocket for a key to escape death. Delay we have, escape we have not. All bodily life ends in death. So if death is universal and inevitable, which it is, why haven't we gotten used to the idea that we all die? Why haven't we accommodated ourselves to the inevitability of death? Can the journey from life to death be reversed? Can it be a journey not from life to death, right? But can it be a journey from leaving the land of the dying and entering the land of the living? Well, it all depends on this question. Can death be defeated? We all know that death is the enemy, but can anyone taunt death? Can anyone stick its tongue out at death? Anybody love some good trash talking? (laughs) You guys might know it was my 40th birthday on Friday, and my parents are in town, Ames and Cindy Owens from Florida. They flew up to see that. And my mom decided to wax eloquently on uh, just the whole process of me coming into this world. And uh, she decided to share. I picked up my dad last week, so I'm going to pick up my mom this week. She's here uh, for it, right? She decided to share what they would have called me if I was a girl. And I saw where this was going, because in our household, trash talking is a way of saying we love you. Uh, Just so you know, for my birthday, I got a poster that says, uh, comfort is a slow death, prefer pain. (laughs) And we hung that up in our garage gym as, you know, yeah, prefer pain. And so as my mom decides to tell them, which I will not tell you, uh, what my name would have been if I was a girl the remainder of the day, guess what my children called me? (laughs) First name and middle. (laughs) My mom spared no details. And so as we went out to the garage to work out as a family, come on. First name, middle name, last name. And it was not Joshua Ames. No, it was a different name. And they enjoyed every minute of trash-talking me, right? So trash-talking is part of this verbal intimidation. It is part of all physical, right, competition. But can anyone really back it up? Can you walk the talk? Jesus does. 
You heard it. John eleven twenty five. you heard him trash talk death. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a bold claim. That's some verbal intimidation against this physical competition with death. And the question is, is he just going to sing it or can he bring it? We're used to doubting these kinds of competition. Everybody knows that talk is cheap. And so can anyone really go head to head with death and bring life? Can anyone stare death in the face and say, bring your worst and I will make it the best thing for you will be no more. Who has the audacity to go head to head with death? It's going to be quite the showdown to go toe-to-toe against death, who from the beginning, death has been undefeated. I don't know if you know this or not, but the death rate is 100%. And so if Jesus can defeat the undisputed champion, death itself, you are going to sit back in uncanny dismay and say, who is this man? So, faith family, the question for us this morning is this. In the person of Jesus Christ, do you know who you are dealing with? We're going to ask three questions of our text. Why did Lazarus die? Why did Lazarus live? And what difference does it make? All so that you can know precisely who you are dealing with. Let's set the scene. If you were not here last week, Jesus gets word that his dearest friend Lazarus is sick and it's urgent. And Jesus responds just how you would hope. Look at verse 4. This illness is not going to end in death. This illness is for God's glory so that God's Son will be glorified through it. Now, if you've been reading through John with us so far, you would just assume that Jesus is going to go to Lazarus and that he's going to heal him. He's healed a blind man. He's healed a lame man. He's healed an official son. And so you're just going to expect that Christ is going to heal Lazarus' sickness. But instead, Jesus stays put for two more days so that Lazarus will die. Now, what help is that? I mean, why not take an Uber and get there as fast as he could? Why not just say the word and he would be healed even from a distance? Well, Jesus loves him, and he is the healer, but he does wait, and so we have to let the story progress, but we're beginning to say, huh, there's something more that's going on here. Who is it exactly who we are dealing with? Well, after two days, he tells his disciples, let's go ahead and go back and find our friend Lazarus in Judea, and there we meet these sisters who are dealing with death, but as the disciples here, let's go back to Judea, they want to avoid death. That's kind of the other approach, right? Let's just stay as far away from it as possible. Look at verse 8. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? It almost erupted into mob violence. They're alarmed. Judea is not a safe place. The Jews have attempted to kill you. But Jesus reassures them with this parable of him walking in the daylight. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered them, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, 
because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's a weird parable, but here's his point, that as long as it is still day, not physically, but just Jesus' time had not yet come, as long as it is still day, Jesus has work to do. And so it's safe for them to go to Judea because he has work to do there, namely the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so we're all going to be fine. This is not my hour yet. The darkness has not come. It is still day. And the disciples hear this, but they're not convinced. They sound like a good Jewish mother. And they say, you know what? Just let him rest, Jesus. He'll get better if he's sick. That's when Jesus has to tell them explicitly, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus is not sad that Lazarus is dead. He's glad. Yeah, literally, he's glad that Lazarus is dead. Look at verse 14. The Jews told them plainly, uh, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. He's glad for this opportunity for them to be able to believe and to learn who they are really dealing with. So let's ask our first question in the text. Why did Lazarus die? Point number one, why did Lazarus die? John goes out of his way for you to know that death has a purpose. And here's the purpose. Death is evidence that you are not God. Death is evidence first that you are not God. God doesn't die. You do. Therefore, you are not God. Now, I know we all like to believe that we're God, but this is a good thing to come to church in the morning, and we worship, and we give praise, and we just remember we are not the king of the universe. Second thing, death tells us that all of us here are under God's judgment. Death tells us that we are all under God's judgment. When God first made Adam, he told him plainly that if you disobey, you will die. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and from that moment, they followed their desires instead of what God wanted, and they died. They died spiritually. Eventually, mortality began to work in their physical bodies that were made to live forever, and they also physically died. And that impacts all of us here today. Someday, we have to come to terms with that we will all die. But the Bible says that that's not natural. So if you're here and you think the way you deal with death is you just get more mature. The older you get, the more funerals you go to, and you just kind of get used to it, and you just mature and you grow up, and you don't mourn it like you used to. No. That's not the biblical answer to death. Death is an intruder into our life. It's not natural. Death is an intrusion to this world that God made, and it's all because of sin. Death comes because of sin. And the whole world is under the sentence of death because this whole world has rebelled against this God of life. And John wants us to see that there's actually a third reason for Lazarus's death. He tells us why in verse 4, so that God's glory might be revealed through the Son. How does the death of a friend and going through that terrific trial bring glory to the Son? Well, I think Jesus makes it clear here. Death brings glory to God 
Because Jesus is given the opportunity to overcome the power of death as easy as it is for us to wake up in the morning. Not those kids that you yell their name. Not those kids that have a dog barking beside them and they sleep through all of that. Okay? I, know, I know some of us really can sleep through almost anything. But for the normal person, right, saying your name wakes you up and it's just that easy that you get up. And Jesus Christ is going to prove that for him, saying, Lazarus, wake up, right? It's just as easy as that as saying, Lazarus, get up from the grave. That's what he's going to do. Now, there's so much that we have been able to accomplish in this life but none of us can do that. We can't undo death. Certainly we've delayed it. We can ease someone's passage into it. For a time we can prevent it by healing people of sickness. But the reality is that once death has taken a hold of somebody, we are powerless to overcome it. But not God. God is glorified because only he can raise the dead as easy as waking somebody up from sleep. That's the whole point. Now, at this point, I'm encouraged by the disciples because they are as clueless as I am, aren't they? They love Jesus. They don't want to abandon him. But at this point in the story, their estimation of him and their future is we are doomed. Okay, look with me at verse 16. Thomas called the twin, so to his fellow disciples, let us also go with him that we may die with him. You know, that's kind of one of those brave heart moments where you kind of begin to beat your chest and you get it, you know, you're going to attack death because you know that's your fate, but you still have to go into battle. And so you clank your armor, you do all these chants, and you run at it because I'm not going to avoid it any longer. I'm just going to attack it and deal with it. I know it's going to hurt. But Thomas doesn't know who he's dealing with and yet how wrong they are. They're not going to go to their death. And I think that's a good application for us as well as Christians, right? We often look at the future. We think we see disaster coming. We think we see distress coming. Possibly even death is right around the corner. But let me remind you that if you're a Christian, you are walking with Jesus. And what does Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. And whoever walks in the light, as long as it is still day, you won't stumble. As long as there is work for you to do, it is God's time. And I have the parameters on that and there is no need to fear. Sometimes we just forget who we are dealing with. Faith family, do you know who you're dealing with? Well, it's time to, for Jesus to show them exactly who they are dealing with. Let's continue in the narrative, preparing ourselves to answer this next question. Why did Lazarus live? Point number two, why did Lazarus live? Well, by the time Jesus arrives at Mary and Martha's house, Lazarus has been dead for days. That's kind of really important in this Bible text because back then there was a superstition that your spirit just kind of hovered around your body for the first three days. After three days of being dead, your spirit left the body and you were officially dead dead. And so what Jesus is doing here on day four is just kind of proving over the cultural superstition of the day that by four days, Lazarus isn't just dead, he's dead dead. Okay, and there's no hope, there's no coming back, which is why Mary and Martha, in their grief, 
it's really kind of palpable. You can hear in 20 through 22. Look at John 11, 20 through 22. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Now, at this point, she is not thinking about a resurrection. We know that because later on, he's going to say, move the tomb. And what does she do? Don't do it, Lord. Right. We're going to get there. Don't, don't take my favorite verse, okay? All right. But she's not thinking of a resurrection yet. She's acknowledging that Jesus' failure to get there on time is not going to dissuade her from putting her trust and faith in him. But like the disciples, she really doesn't know who she's dealing with yet. So Christ says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She has hope for the future. She's basically taking his comments like, like we would say, I know he's in a better place. I know we'll see her again. That's kind of how she's interpreting your brother will live again. But Jesus is not talking about a future event. Jesus is actually going to talk about himself. Look at 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I'm not talking about a future day. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus has some claims to make about himself. And he claims to have life in himself. To have life that can actually have power over death. Life that can't be erased by death. The life that he can give, that will never end. That's what he claims. And it's a claim that only God can make. Because only God has eternal life. And so he asked Martha, do you believe this? Just like he asked you today, do you believe this? If you want a life that never ends, then you have to put your trust in Jesus. For he is the only one who has this kind of life that never ends. And he's the only one that can give this kind of life that never ends. And so Martha confesses that faith. Look at 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But she still doesn't understand who she's dealing with quite yet. For Jesus asked to be taken to the tomb, and Martha objects. Look at 38. Pick up, our, pick up here at verses 38 through 39. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Do you see it? Four days is beyond her estimation of his power. Sure, he can heal a blind man, sure, he can heal a, uh, a lame man, sure, he can speak a word, but death for four days, I know you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world, but her faith shrivels at the face of death. Jesus responds to her, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
Now, I think I want you to really know something important here, because we often get this wrong in some bad theology we pick up, sometimes from the TV or books we read. But would you notice that it is not Martha's faith that is powering this whole encounter? Martha does not have faith. Martha doesn't know who she is dealing with. Your faith is not some kind of generator that keeps this power glowing and going. That if I just have enough faith, then God will do. And the reason why God hasn't done for me is because I must not have enough faith. That's not true. She is warning Jesus against opening the tomb. I love the King James. I was raised on it in 6th grade through 12th grade at a Christian school. We had to memorize verses. Yes, all of us memorized two verses from John 11. Jesus wept, number one, right? Shortest verse ever. Second, we all memorized junior high boys, he stinketh. King James Version. Don't you love that? He's, no, Lord, he stinketh. We're, we go around all day long, boys' locker room, it stinketh. You know, I mean, that was just what we did, Okay. Brings me back to Evangel Christian School and these great teachers tried to invest in us. And here we were just looking for silly verses. I know. Anyways, this whole interchange is to prove that Jesus is doing a sign to signify who he really is, which is why he prays out loud. In verses 41 through 42, notice that Jesus wants everyone to hear his prayer to God. 41. So they took away the stone Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. The Bible is clear that when we pray out loud in church, we are praying to God and for other people's good. I know a lot of us have a hard time praying out loud. Maybe you're with a gathering of Christians. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What'd you say? I wasn't talking to you. No, no, actually you, you were. You can talk to God and it can also be for other people's good. Just something to notice as we actually spend time together in prayer, right? Christ prays here to God but it's for other people to know. He doesn't just have a trick that he's pulling up his sleeve. He wants people to know through his prayer that he has come from God, that he has authority, and his whole purpose in coming is to bring dead people to life. And they're going to catch that by the prayer he prays. Turn your eyes to verses 43 through 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with him, linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus commands Lazarus to come out. Notice that he does not ask Lazarus if he wants to come out. There's been a lot of debate. If he would have asked Lazarus, I don't want to leave. This is better than where I'm returning. Okay. He doesn't give him the opinion to come out. You know, I want to respect your free will here. No, he commands, and Lazarus obeys the summons. Lazarus does not think it over. He doesn't consider his options. There is no resisting God's voice or will. Lazarus did not have a choice about staying dead. 
Jesus didn't need Lazarus' help either. He didn't need his cooperation or any effort, and he doesn't need ours either. No, Lazarus has heard the voice of God, and he walks out wrapped in grave clothes. Lazarus stands before you as a picture of your salvation. Life comes from hearing the word, not from your religious piety, not from your religious rituals or performance. The man who was dead is now alive because God spoke to him, said his name, and called him out. And when God speaks, dry, dead, decomposing bones live. That should encourage you in your evangelism. They don't need more tactics, more techniques, more strategies. God's word, as you're filled with the Spirit, speaking it to a dead man can cause a dead man to become alive, not because of your technique, or even his faith, but because God says, today's the day that you're going to be born again. And he comes out, and he walks, and he lives. So here's the answer to the second question. Why does Lazarus live? It's for the glory of God. Why does Lazarus live? The answer, for the glory of God. And this is where your brains need to fire. Have I lost you? Can you endure? Are you ready for a second wind? Some of you are like, yeah, I can do this. All right, great. All right, nudge your neighbor if you have to, all right? I'm wearing my fall sweater, so it's a little warm today, all right? <laughs> also got teased on wearing fall sweaters, so I thought might as well embrace it. <laughs> Trash talking is my love language. <laughs> all right. The glory of God. This is worth your concentrated effort, not my sweater, okay? Uh, Lazarus lives so the glory of God can be displayed. Now, the glory of God is just this big word that means his splendor, his majesty, his beauty, his weightiness. The significance of who God is is seen in the signs that Jesus has been performing. The significance of who God is and all of his glory and beauty and majesty is seen in the signs that Jesus has been performing. Just listen to John 2.11. You can write it down. John 2.11. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, revealed it. He brought light to God's glory and splendor and worth and majesty through the signs that he did. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We skip down to verses 16 through 18. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. This Jesus is that God. He's revealing the Father's glory. So this is what John is doing. John is saying, if I want the reader to see God's glory, I'm going to put Jesus on every page. And according to John, Jesus is able to reveal God in a more perfect way than even Moses was able to do. If you're new to the Bible, you might not know who Moses is. So we have to just kind of push pause here. We love non-Christians to come, and we don't want you to feel like we're talking over your head. Moses was somebody who's famous in the Bible all the way back in the book of Exodus, the second book. And there came a time when he asked to see God's glory. And God says, you cannot see my glory and live. 
but I will hide you in a cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my back, okay? And he does that right before he's going to deliver, all right, the people of Israel from Egypt. And so God's going to say, you want to know what my glory looks like? It's going to look like this, casting out the enemy from the land, calling my own people to myself out of bondage in Egypt to make them a people for myself in the promised land. Those are the words of Moses. My glory is seen when I call people out of spiritual bondage in Egypt. I call them to myself. I make them a people, and I let them become free in the land of the promise. Now come back to John 11. We're going to see all this connect. When Jesus says, you're going to see the glory of God, he evokes the name of God that Moses used. When he says, who am I going to say sent me to go deliver the people out of Egypt? God says, you should tell them that I am has sent you. And so when Jesus wants to reveal God's glory, he takes on this great name of God. He says, I am. So whatever deliverer Moses was, Jesus is saying, I'm better. I'm more. Moses says, I'm here to bring you out. But when Jesus walks up to Lazarus' tomb, he just says, Lazarus, come out. Not I'm bringing you out, just come out. And it's an echo of what Moses said to Pharaoh. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. But what does Jesus say here? All of that glory of the Old Testament is now here before the tomb, and there is this great enemy called death who has a stranglehold on all of humanity. And Jesus looks at that tomb and says, Lazarus, come out, unbind him, and let him go. Let my people go. A dead man walking through Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's glory beyond what God did for Israel in the Old Testament. And what God does for Lazarus he can do for me and for you. Hebrews tells you that you, your whole life, were subject to fear of death. And you can be delivered from that fear of death because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, right, shall never die. Everyone who lives, believes me, shall never die. And so when Josh Owens lays four days dead in the grave to steal some great preachers. Know that I am not dead. But what does the old preacher say? I am more alive than I have ever been. There will be a day when the trumpet sounds and faith family, many of us have stood together on all kinds of soil. Soils in which we have buried our loved ones. From Loudoun to Concord to Manchester, to Winthrop, to New Jersey. And a great resurrection is going to occur. And our death is but the entrance into glory. Faith family, don't get it twisted. We are not leaving the land of the living and going into the land of the dying. As a Christian, you are leaving the land of the dying and going into the land of the living. Do you know who you are dealing with? Well, if you're here as a non-Christian, the question I leave with you is a question that Christ posed to Martha. Do you believe this? 
Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and he fed 6,000 that day. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and he healed a man born blind. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the next thing he does is he raises a dead man who's been dead for four days. He doesn't say, I know where to find life. He doesn't say, I'll give you some tips on how to get life if you just follow this strategy, if you just obey my teaching. No, he says, I am the resurrection of life, and he proves it. If you want evidence, he proves it by raising a dead man from the grave. Maybe you're here, and you've been delaying putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You think you might be missing out on the good things in life if you say yes to Jesus. My non-Christian friend, you could not be more mistaken. The Bible tells you the wages of sin is death. What you earn with your life is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God does not punish you for believing in Jesus Christ. God rewards you, and he gives you life, eternal life, life that can never be taken away because it is life of God himself. Faith family, let me give you an application in closing. What difference does a resurrection make in your life? What difference does the resurrection make in your life? It should change everything. So would people conclude based upon your priorities? Would anyone conclude based upon your Sundays through uh, Saturdays? Would anyone conclude from your tears? Would anyone conclude from your hopes? Would anyone conclude from your prayers that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Let me see if I can put it to you a different way. Are you using the resurrection power in your life? Are you using the resurrection power in your life? Would anyone suppose that by the way you live, the way you parent, the way you forgive in marriages, the way you endure affliction at work, the way and the joy and the confidence you have in witnessing, by the way you give away your money, by the way you kill sin, would anyone say, that must be not him, but Christ through her, because it is the power of the resurrection displayed in her life? Many of you might look at lust and say, I've been bound by that for years. Others of you look at anxiety and how it has entangled you. Others of you look at how bitterness has just squeezed out all the joy in your life. Go, I don't know how I could overcome that. Hey, family, what difference does it make in your life that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Do you know who you are dealing with? If you do, a great application today would be this. Go and kill a sin. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. How can we die or how can we live to sin if we've died to it. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? We were buried with Christ in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are no longer entangled and enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So faith family, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6, 1 through 11, paraphrased. I think it's great for our next song. The same power that rose Christ from the dead 
is alive and at work in us. If you know the power of Christ's resurrection in your life, go kill a sin today. Let's sin and sing.